This is the day the Lord has made. We have come to rejoice and be glad in Him. This is the day for God to turn it around. And you know, here's the thing about God turning things around. He tends to turn things around by turning us around. And so I am praying for turnarounds today. And uh, perhaps one of them will be in your perceptions. One of them will be in your choices. I'm praying that God will turn you around to align with his blessing. And then those that are in your wake and in your circle will feel it. Amen? Amen. And if you're joining us, this is your first time with us. You're joining us online. We're glad you're here for a turnaround day like this. But I got to tell you right up front, this could be a challenging message. Could be an uncomfortable message. So hang on. (laughs) Hang in there with me. Back in 1988, June 1988, a lightning strike on a single tree ignited what is now known as the most massive wildfire in the recorded history of Yellowstone National Park. Two years later, my family and I took a family vacation there, and we were prepared to see acres and acres and acres and acres of burned out, blackened forest. And indeed we did. I mean, to see the landscape was to see this canvas punctuated with tree trunks that looked like oversized charcoal pencils, you know, all different sizes and shapes jutting toward this horizon in this sort of haunting um, gray bony skeletons toward the sky. I mean, it was just eerie. It was, it was haunting, really. But what I wasn't prepared for was the thriving, bright green beauty of all of the grass that was now growing green across the fields and at the base of every burned-out tree. I'm not kidding you. At the base of every burned-out tree, this stubborn green grass of bright, optimistic, new life, new growth, all defiantly challenging every bit of the damage that the fire had done. Media reports during the fire, maybe you remember, they were saying, this is the most devastating fire in Yellowstone history. The forests are gone. They will never come back. Stuff like that, you know, is ominous uh, stuff. But the National Parks Traveler webpage, if you go there today, this is what you're going to read. Quote, as quickly as they burned, Yellowstone's forests also quickly came back. Back to life. Even while fires were actively being fought in some parts of the park, in other areas that had burned, they were bursting with vegetation. Lodgepole pine cones are sealed with a sticky resin that uh, actually need high flame in order to open so that they drop their seeds. So as the flame spread, through areas seemingly leaving them burned and blackened and barren. They were actually reseeding the areas as they went. The result, the article says, is tens of thousands of replacement trees that would sprout up in the ensuing years. Temperatures high enough to kill deep roots occurred in less than one-tenth of 1% of Yellowstone's forest. And if water was available, new new plant growth began within a few days. 
Close quote. Now, in this series, we've been exploring a biblical foundation for the popular 12-step recovery program. And recovery is what happens after the burn. And step nine is where we are today, about the reseeding so that new life can grow in the aftermath of injury. In the 12-step program, it reads like this. Make amends, make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So now you see why I said this could be a very challenging talk. This could be a very uncomfortable message. But one that could turn things around and reseed new growth if we're willing. In our He Gets It focus, we're saying it like this. Jesus knows how to do the healing work. So I make amends that heal. Reseed. This is a healing process toward mental and emotional health. And so at this point, we're invited to join the healing work. And we don't and we won't participate in further injury. You saw that in the step. But we do and we will participate in the healing process. And so this is very much like Jesus. Last week, we, step eight invited us to do what? Make a list of all persons we'd harmed um, and then become willing to make amends with them. No action required except make a list. You know, make a list of people that you think you've harmed and then just sit with the list uh, long enough for something to rise up perhaps in you that says, are you willing to do anything about this? Just make a list. It's an exercise of self-awareness, not in justifying your behavior, not in rationalizing your behavior, not in making excuses. Just make a list of every harm and offense that you think you've been a part of creating for somebody else. Uncomfortable. But step eight doesn't invite us to do anything except make a list. Have you made a list? Make a list and then sit with it long enough to look for the connection and the cause that you played in, uh, in creating the offense. Long enough till something rose up in you that said, hey, maybe I'd be willing to do something about this. Now, did you know the Bible says, the Bible actually assumes that we're going to offend one another? Did you know that? The Bible assumes that you're going to be offended by people. And in the church, that church people are going to offend each other, that we're going to be offensive to one another. And when we offend and when we take offense from one another, it doesn't just leave us there. It gives us some guidance on what to do when that happens. And uh, <laughs> perhaps we should just clarify here that this is the human condition, that this is the human propensity, this is the human reality in our marriages, in our homes, in our businesses, in our country, in our lives. Human beings offend and take offense. We get offended by one another. So what does the Scripture offer us as far as a context for responding to this? Well, it, it says that we should hold in tension two types of virtues as we face it, justice and mercy. Truth 
and grace. And we see those playing themselves out in tension. The desire to do what's right, I want what's right. But the desire to do what's right in the way most right for the relationship. And that's where the healing will meet us. That's part of what we're starting to pay attention to now. Now, you might remember from the law of Moses, he said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Did you know Moses didn't teach that to say, so go get what's yours. Go settle accounts. No, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was placed not to vent revenge and validate revenge, but rather to restrain it said, okay, if you lost a tooth, then don't take more than a tooth. you got to stop with what's right. The, the response was to fit the offense and not go any farther. And then we see a little bit later in his teaching, the law of Moses from Numbers chapter 5. He gives us another example from the Old Testament. Chapter 5, verse 5, it says, The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, When a man or a woman wrongs another in any way, and so is unfaithful to the Lord. That person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed and then must make full restitution for his wrong, add a fifth to it, and then give it to the person he's wronged. Did you know that was in there? Yeah, this is something about amends. It's something about self-awareness, when an offense happens, and then responsibility to enter into the hurting place with some level of healing response. But you know, that, that command first came 3,440 years ago. We've been at this for a while. 1420 B.C. Well, then let's uh, back up in the New Testament. We saw last week an illustration from 2,020 years ago in the ministry of Jesus to a guy named Zacchaeus. He was meeting with Jesus, and after his lunch meeting with Jesus, Zacchaeus announces to everybody, he says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. This is Luke 19, verse 8. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, then I'm going to pay back four times the amount. Good grief. What is this? And of course, what I'm going to say is this is Jesus helping Zacchaeus find the amends department. Not full reparations, but amends. Making amends is in the life of Jesus. Now, the book of Proverbs puts it like this. Fools mock at making amends. Mock at making amends for sin. But goodwill is found among the upright. In other words, making amends is an act of goodwill. You know how the angel said that Christmas night, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. This is a part of how it gets to us. When we've offended one another and we're having offense with one another, then goodwill can be poured into the offended area when we choose to make amends. Making amends is an act of goodwill. And only the foolish... Pretend when it comes to making amends. They, they mock it. But those seeking to live more upright lives, wanting to be part of goodwill in the world, pay attention. So you don't just sweep past injury under the rug. I mean, 
You don't pretend like it never happened. You don't... Um, But where that crooked place came, goodwill seeks to straighten it out, especially when it came through you, that crooked place. So to do that means, and we've already seen this, that means that we've got to think about others, we've got to think about where we got off track, and we've got to think about, uh, think about who it was and what happened that I did long enough that I become willing to be part of some healing activity, making amends. That's step eight. That was last week. Step nine <laughs> is, okay, so make amends. But no further harm. That's real important, too. That's why this is a scary talk as well as a challenging one. So maybe a word here about what amends is not would be helpful. Amends is not buying forgiveness. Amends is not salving a guilty conscience. Amends is not making things right. It, amends is not paying your debt or fixing what you broke. Because what we start discovering as we do a self-awareness and self-evaluation on this that spiritually none of us is strong enough, smart enough, or rich enough to do that. Some actions once done can never be undone. That's what we start realizing that this isn't just a surface injury, that, that some losses are deep and, and they can't just be fixed, paid back. I'm thinking about the scene in Princess Bride where Indigo Montoya goes and spends his whole life in script in the movie. You know, you kill my father, prepare to die. And then when he finally faces the one who created that horrible offense in his life, he said, tell me, what can I do? I, I'll do anything. And he says, I want my father back. And what you're suddenly aware of is that that kind of justice doesn't exist on this side of eternity. Some deeds once done cannot be undone. And so we're invited to think carefully and deeply about this. Amends isn't pretending like nothing happened. Amends is not saying, oh, I can fix that. No, amends is... Uh, is something that acknowledges that only the blood of Jesus can go that deep into the pain and suffering that human beings give and receive from one another in our inhumanity. Only God's mercy can cleanse our real guilt and free our hearts for true healing and then engage us in being agents of healing. That's what amends allows us to do. Even in the aftermath of the harm that is real and that was done. Amends says this, the harm was real. It's real. And I have sat with it long enough to feel how real it is. And I realized that I was part of doing it. I, I, emotionally, I've reflected upon it, and I know that this harm cannot be undone. Amends gives us an opportunity to show remorse. Amends gives us an opportunity to show a change of mind, a change of direction, a change of heart, a turning around. Amends has a way of making an apology even more real. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Amends can take words 
that sometimes ring hollow and fill them with substance and weight that doesn't fix it, but it invites us to listen in a different way. 1 John 3.18, John the Apostle of Love says this, Dear children, let's love not with words or speech. I mean, words can go so far, but then he says actions in truth. So we're sitting into the truth long enough to let our actions find a voice. Amens puts actions into words of apology. So Paul, great apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter of love, love is where we're supposed to go. He says love doesn't dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs doesn't delight in evil, rejoices with truth, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, ay, ay, ay. And yet here, this, there's truth here for both sides of which way the door is swinging, to the offended and to the offender. Those who want to follow Christ in love will say, okay, which piece of this fits my part in this expression that we're calling step nine. People who want to live in the freedom and healing that love can bring, that Christ following Christ followers can participate. That's what step nine's talking about. Jesus knows how to do the healing work. Wherever your injury, whatever you've taken, whatever you've given, Jesus knows how to do the healing work. But he wants to engage us in the healing. So what does he say? I make amends that heal. Now, another thing, just sitting in my pastor's office with the offended and the offenders over these decades of ministry together, I can tell you that there are different depth levels of offense taken. And that's got to be considered when you really want to enter into the healing at that level. Some harm is emotional and personal. That's like bearing the hurt of someone's words. Someone's insults, someone's put down, someone's ridicule, someone's lies. But then there's another level, uh, social and public, that may involve a public betrayal, um, an exclusion, an abandonment, uh, slander, damage to the relationship, to the reputation. Then there's another level of material loss where you've actually lost property because somebody was cheating, somebody was stealing, somebody, you know... It it was a material loss that was involved in this offense. And then there's another level that's like, oh my, criminal and traumatic, such as violent acts that cause bodily harm, and where this may be what they were originally thinking, where they said making amends would only create greater injury. My pastoral perspective is that most all harm involves a loss of trust. And that makes this step really challenging, doesn't it? So i got to tell you this, it's not my purpose to try to outline today responses to the different levels of harm. I'm just making us aware of them. I want us to see the solid biblical foundation for, the, uh, for recovery, and then I want us to see how Jesus himself models this quality of forgiveness that is able in the pain and suffering to redeem such situations that really deserve apology and amends. So that's where I'm going from here, okay? You turn with me there, would you? But before we get to that, I, I think I need to say that I know how countercultural this entire idea is. You're probably already ahead of me on that one. Like, what world is he living in? 
Where does anybody do this? Because, you know, the idea, the whole idea sounds ludicrous, especially in a society as litigious as ours. It's like on one hand, the rule seems to be never admit guilt. And on the other hand, I'm telling you, if you Google apology, you're going to get all kinds. This has surprised me. You're going to get all kinds of advice popping up, lots of different sites popping up on how to make the perfect apology. I was surprised. Like one of them was from the Etiquette School of America. You know, you think about what level of offense was taken here. But they have seven steps to a perfect apology on a social blunder or personal nature. You know, you can find advice there. Another one was a defense attorney that had given a TED Talk, very popular TED Talk, on how to deliver a, an authentic apology. And this is what he says. Using the right words and making an apology can mean the difference between going to jail or going home. Between seeing your children twice a year or twice a week. So the list goes on and on. I mean, you can get advice on making an apology from Forbes magazine. When the offense is financial or business-related, you can get advice from Oprah.com on whatever, you know, needs to be apologized and amended there. Or you can get it from Berkeley University. I mean, the list goes on and on. How to make an appropriate apology. Knowing how to offer and receive a meaningful apology matters. So here's how we're going to answer that question. How does the Word of God tell us to do it? Others are given advice. How does Scripture tell us to do it? And when we come to the Word of God, why don't we go to the incarnate Word and see how Jesus, what does Jesus have to offer us on the matter? Let's start with Jesus. With Jesus' forgiveness. Before we ever make an apology or are asked to receive an apology, Christ followers start with Jesus. That makes sense, right? With Jesus' forgiveness. The first words of Jesus from the cross regarding those who were offending him at the time. He was innocent and receiving sentence of cruel, violent crucifixion. And yet, what are the first words he speaks? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So here's my, here's my observation. Jesus, Jesus' type of forgiveness is offered before and without an apology ever coming. Maybe a new thought. Forgiveness was not transactional. It was transformational. And Jesus doesn't wait for an apology. He leads with forgiveness. So, what? Help me. Uh, it's like receive and release was the way that Jesus was living and dying as our Savior. What do you mean, Pastor? I mean receiving the life-giving, forgiving grace of God was the way that he lived his life, did his ministry, died on the cross, and rose from the dead. This was the secret. <laughs> receiving and releasing the life-giving, forgiving grace of God. Did he need to be forgiven? No. No. Of No, he had never sinned, but he needed God's life-giving, forgiving as a weapon in the arsenal against sin. And so he forgave as one never needing forgiveness, but leading with forgiveness. You know, of course, we forgive as those always needing it. 
we just don't think we do. And oftentimes we are blinded and blocked by our own pride, by fear, and by judgment of others that, hey, we feel they don't deserve it. They don't deserve to be forgiven. Okay, of course. Okay, think about this. The only time anybody needs forgiveness is when they don't deserve it. That's the only time in the game that you can play that card. Is when offenses come, they don't deserve it, and you've got the card, and the only time that forgiveness, that anybody needs forgiveness, is when they don't deserve it. Uh, isn't that ironic? Okay, here's another irony. That the judgment we hold against them in bearing a grudge or resentment actually poisons us more than it does them. So where am I going with this? Forgiveness is the spiritual medicine that God gives us, that Jesus models to use on ourselves in the, in the middle of the offense so that it doesn't stick. Forgiveness is the spiritual currency of God's grace that he has deposited in your account under his name so that you can access it in times just like he needed to use it on that cross. Father, I'm leading with forgiveness. Not because they deserve it, not because they ask for it, but because this is how we do things. Your life in my life, your forgiving grace through me, this is how we're going to turn things around eternally, so we don't get stuck in the muck and the pain of resentment, but we can use it, forgiving others. We forgive ourselves. We receive God's forgiveness in ourselves, and then we share it with others in this fallen world. Here's where I'm going with this. Forgiveness is the key to mental health. Forgiveness is a key to emotional peace of mind. Forgiveness, if you want to find your way to healthy, it means facing this. It means facing what you have done to others that created harm. And then you sit with what you have done there long enough to say, this is not the future I want. I, I'm going to become willing to be part of a healing process here. And then you forgive yourself from the infinite resources of God's mercy in Christ poured out on the cross and receive it yourself so that you don't become your own snag in an unpayable offense Amends doesn't make the offense go away. It just shows that we're self-aware of the pain and suffering it created. And that we got to go to a higher source for that. So we, be, we become willing to forgive ourselves first as we receive the infinite forgiveness of Jesus. And then we are willing to let it channel through us into the burned out places of those we've injured. And we bring an offering, a token, a symbol, a gesture. It's not a payment we don't make things right. We just show up saying, man, I'm wrong. And I'm trusting mercy to meet me in justice and, uh, and offer amends, though there is no way to restore or replace the damage done. Isn't that right? Offering amends doesn't and should not place the offended further in harm's way. So we're guarding against that. But every loss is beyond restoration in some way. When you start thinking about it, lost time, lost opportunity, lost reputation, lost trust, those things can't simply be repaid, now everything's fine. No. 
So in the spirit of God's infinite forgiveness, then I'd like to remind you what the prodigal son did when he came to his senses. Jesus told the story. He said, man, this son was rebellious. He was wasting his life. He comes to his senses and he says, I got to go home. And as soon as he thought about going home, he thought, man, what a mess I made when I left. And so he made a list, didn't he? He said, I've, got, I've offended my father and I did harm to our relationship and I got to go back and I'm going to So let's listen to what he said. I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so I'm wondering, is Jesus showing us how to say I'm sorry here? Is Jesus showing us how to make an apology, how to return home, and how to make amends? You you answer that for yourself as you reflect upon this. But the son is making his plan in three parts. His plan to have this encounter. He's going to, you know, make amends. He's going to show up. He's going to own his stuff. What does he do? First, he says, I'm going to admit my error and the pain that I caused. And that's where he starts the conversation. Father, and there's the individual that took the heat, took the hurt. Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. My actions have created harm spiritually and emotionally in our family, and I gotta show up with that. The harm that I've created, I've sinned. Number two, I show remorse that feels the cost of the loss and my part in it. What does he say? I'm not worthy to be called your son. My behaviors have disqualified me from our relational intimacy. My behaviors have damaged our relationship. I'm in shame. I'm in guilt. He just says it for himself because of my wrong. And then third, he says, I ask if there's anything I can do to work things out. Not make it right. Not pay my debt. He just says, can, I, can you hire me on? Hire me on. Put me to work as your servant. And so perhaps the third part is do what you can to work. Work it out. This pattern is also seen in the Old Testament story of Joseph. As I was preparing, I thought, hey, wait. Genesis, first book of the Bible, first family of the Bible, you know, is playing out over time. Joseph's brothers have abused him. They've betrayed him. I don't know if you've run into family difficulty along the way, but Joseph, oh, my goodness, they've sold him into slavery. They lied to their dad about him. I mean, the list of harms, these guys making a list of the harms done, it's long. Sold him into slavery. But in Genesis chapter 50, we come to the moment of profound Apology, verse 17. Please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they've done you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. What is that? That's an admission of error and the pain that was caused. Right? And then look at this, verse 18. The brothers came and they threw themselves down before Joseph. It's like non-verbally. They're saying, man, we're in. I mean, we've, we've sat with this emotionally long enough that we can't, we can't pretend like it didn't happen. I mean, we're, we're at your feet. Look what we did. And their approach, their physical and bodily emotional approach showed the depth of their remorse and of their regret. Next part of verse 18. Look, we're your slaves. 
We're here to work. If there's anything we can do to work things out. See, that's what amends offers. And that's where healing will find our hearts. So who's on your list? You thought about it yet? Who have you harmed? Thought about it yet? Have you sat with it long enough to feel anything about it? And as those feelings rise, have you asked in the presence of God, is there something I'm supposed to become willing about around this? I'm, I'm not sure I'm willing, but I'm willing to become willing, Lord, if that's what you've got in mind. And then as you feel prompted to take this step, then I would suggest to you that it's also wise to write it out, to get your thinking visible in front of you with words, to write the apology, to write the amends, and then do it with a uh, spiritual confidant. Do it with a mentor who can pray through it with you and who is there so that your heart can find healing and that you can align your life to the life of Jesus. That's what the purpose is here. Right? That's what we're seeking to do. And then pray with you through it and then realize that we don't do this alone. None of us are in this thing by ourselves. It's a community thing. And then review your words. That's what the son does. Before he ever gets to the father, I mean, he's got his story out. He's starting to tell it. He say, maybe he said him out loud as he was rehearsing it along the way. You know, when I see my dad, here's what I'm going to say. Father, I've sinned. He knew what he was going to say, careful with his words. And then saying them out loud to rehearse them so that his heart has a chance to catch up with his mind and start feeling what this means. Now remember, don't hide, don't blame, don't deflect, don't distort. Admit your error, own the pain that it has created. Don't try to dodge it, the suffering that it has caused. Ask yourself, is there, is there anything you can do? to begin to work toward what's right. Benjamin Franklin once said, don't ruin an apology with an excuse. <laughs> you know, I did this, but if you hadn't done that, then... Eh. Own what's yours. Step nine says this, make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Now, in our he gets us, here's what we've said. Jesus knows how to do the healing work, and so I make amends that heal. This is the healing process toward emotional and mental health, and so at this point, we're being invited to join the healing work where the pain has happened. But pastor, ha, <laughs> What if somebody comes to me and apologizes to me? What am I supposed to do? Okay, let's go back to Jesus. That's a good place to start and to follow. Jesus is our model. If you're on the receiving end of receiving an apology, then go back to Jesus on the cross. By the way, Jesus on the cross didn't wait for them to come to let forgiveness begin its healing work, did he? He chose to forgive as a lead measure and before an apology ever comes, you can do the same thing. If you're thinking about people who you think should be finding you after a message like this, then you don't have to wait for them to come. And if they never come, you can still get free. How? By doing what Jesus did. When they didn't come to him either, but he just said, you know what I'm about? I'm about God's life-giving, forgiving. 
And so you can choose to forgive as part of the divine remedy that's going to bring healing to your heart and help you not get stuck in the muck of pain and an unpayable offense. May God give us grace to understand what I just said. And then the Apostle Peter said this. We heard from John, we heard from Paul. What does Peter say? Above all things, above all. What does above all mean? That means everything else is under this one. This one is the one that's above all, right? What does that mean to you? Whatever is your all, this goes above it. All your pain, well, maybe that might be included. If that's part of all, then put this above that. What does he say? Love each other deeply. Why? Because they deserve it? No, because love covers. Love has a healing power that can cover a multitude of sins. The fire has been burning, and the roots are at risk. And Jesus says, let the seeds start being sown so that you don't get stuck in the pain. Lead with love, not because others deserve it, but because of how love works. Right in the middle of injury, forgiveness can dethorn the roots of bitterness that entangle so many in our culture, in our families, and then empower us to rise above the culture and then access a power beyond the culture, that's the cross of Jesus Christ, and then bring its power and remedy and freedom into the culture right where the injuries seem to keep burning. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you pretend like it never happened. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you act out of Cancel culture. You're dead to me. You're invisible to me. You don't matter to me. No. Christ followers, we're saying above all, Jesus is who we follow. And when we follow him, he offers freedom and healing from the sting of death and the sting of sin to those who will join him in the healing experience. Someone asked me, Pastor, do I need to apologize for sins in my mind? You know, like, like, do I need to tell that I've been lusting after you? I'm sorry. <laughs> do, I, do I need to, you know, when I've been envying somebody for what they have, do I need to confess that? And, you know, do I need to? Um, I've had hateful feelings for you for years. So I just wanted to confess. You know? Uh, no. No, here's my pastoral advice to you. No. No, those are sins before God, and that's where your confession should go, to where your sins have been offensive. So, uh, no, that doesn't require confession. Sins of the mind do not require confession or amends with another. But when they move from the mind into action that involves property or persons, behavior, then apology and amends are keys to freedom for you and for them. So I want to ask you, and on your journey to peace of mind, is it time to lay down your weapons, break the arrows, move toward peace, and pick up your keys that can restore? Will you let the Yellowstone fire bring a whole new life? Or keep burning down into your roots. Forgiveness is the path to peace of mind and letting go of the pain and releasing the suffering into the nail-scarred hands 
of the one who loves you and completely paid our full debt. And then has the, what does it take for him to turn to us and say, now here, forgive each other just as in Christ. God has forgiven you. Final word before we pray. Forgiveness doesn't mean that God wants you to cozy up with your offender. Forgiveness doesn't mean that God wants you to stay in a toxic or abusive relationship. It means what I've said it means in the rest of this message, if you were paying attention. It means offering seeds to the burned out places in your life so that new life can grow there. Would you pray with me now? Gracious God, we thank you for this word of truth from your word that will meet us in our place of pain with the opportunity to find healing and freedom. And I'm praying for sisters and brothers in this place that are connecting with us online, wherever the point of pain has come into their soul, that this day might be a day of turning that thing around and then experiencing the freedom that forgiveness can bring into our souls and hearts and lives and marriages and families and relationships and then letting the grass grow and the forest rebloom. Is that for you, sister, brother? Would you lean into it? And perhaps for somebody today, this is your day, the day of salvation, to say, Lord Jesus, I thank you that on the cross you were talking about me when you were dying and said, Father, forgive her. Father, forgive him. I receive your forgiveness, Lord. And then when you rose from the dead and made your spirit available that you wanted me to know the fullness of your love by your Spirit. Come into my life. Holy Spirit, fill me. And now lead me as I seek to follow you. In your name I pray. Our heads bowed just for a moment longer. If you prayed that prayer with me and would let me ask God's blessing on your next steps of faith, then I'm gonna ask you simply to raise your hand and hold it up for just a moment. If you're joining us online, please let us know so that we can connect with you as well. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you, brother. On the aisle, in the middle, toward the back, all the way on the left, my left. God bless you. Thank you, Lord. For every person who by uplifted hand is saying, my heart is open and I'm trusting you as my Savior. Fill me. Free me. Forgive me. As I follow you forward, may they know the fullness of your peace. We make our prayer in your name, Jesus. Amen.